Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. Talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not? And why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, So there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, We're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast now a part of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation. Today I have Dr. Frank Bodnar. He's a licensed chiropractor in Wisconsin and Illinois. Uh, he runs MSK Solutions Pain Recovery Program as a brand manager there at the, the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center. And we're going to talk about a, maybe, I guess, what an ancillary topic, but osteoimmunology. Uh, the immunology, I guess, the bones. Uh, there appears to be a connection between uh, our bones and immune system. Frank, thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you so much, Richard, for having me on. You know, this is definitely... Um exciting area, a new area that's being researched and further developed. But uh, there's some some really interesting things from a lifestyle perspective that I think uh, a lot of people are unaware of. And I think, you know, they can be maybe fruitful for the topic of our conversation. So in addition to cracking back, how did you get an awareness of our bones and the importance of the immunology and the, you know, the health of our body and the bones? Yeah, you know, so a lot of what we do as chiropractors, you know, we'll take x-rays and we will examine, you know, the musculoskeletal system as a whole, but bone density does come up in conversation. I wouldn't say a lot of chiropractors specifically treat osteoporosis, but really what led me down this path was really my interest in nutrition and kind of what led me to, you know, the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center as a whole. But, you know, it was really this interest in nutrition and kind of what we're able to do through modifying our diet, through getting specific nutrients at certain levels and, um, you know, kind of observing what changes can take place on not so much x-ray, but, you know, DEXA scan is really the gold standard when it comes to osteoporosis and osteopenia. So, it, I would say it was really that that advanced study uh, when it came to nutrition. 
So what is osteoporosis versus osteopenia? Yeah, osteoporosis. Uh, so when you you know shoot a DEXA scan, it's a you know basically a dual ray, dual X-ray that is uh, basically going to give you a reading of where the most dense parts are, usually in the lumbar spine, the hips. Sometimes they'll also scan the wrist as well. But essentially, it's going to be the difference between you know a more severe reading on the DEXA scan, which would be anything you know negative two point five on a T score or lower, which would put you in the osteoporosis category, and then um, kind of pre-osteoporotic or what a lot of, you know, experts are now calling bone loss is uh, osteopenia. So really anything, you know, below that between the normal range in that osteoporotic range. So um, it's really a time where, you know, that's, that's a good time to engage the patient and really kind of, you know, have that long-term discussion and let them know what the future holds if things don't change and, uh, you know, kind of what the normal, you know, life cycle of bone density looks like. So what spurred your interest in uh, osteoporosis and osteopenia? Is there a story or a particular event that triggered for you or what happened? You know, for me, I would say in addition to studying nutrition, I would say just observing, you know, kind of off topic a little bit, but kind of brings it back to like the chronic disease equation is really watching my dad's journey through diabetes. And so when I was in college, he was diagnosed with type two diabetes and, you know, he was doing all the things that we know not to do. And, um, you know, he was drinking lots of soda, you know, eating lots of pizza, you know, wasn't, wasn't doing the right things. Right. And when he was first diagnosed, I was taking anatomy and physiology in, in school. So we were learning about type two diabetes, but he was told by his doctor, you know, there's really nothing you can do for type two diabetes. And I think with the big push now compared to where we were even 10, 15 years ago with lifestyle medicine, um, we know that there's actually a lot that we can do from that perspective. And so kind of the same, you know, curiosity was sparked in me when it came to osteoporosis and osteopenia. And, you know, through kind of what I do here at the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center, I, you know, part of what I do is I help doctors implement programs to, you know, help treat patients from a lifestyle perspective with uh, osteopenia and osteoporosis. So kind of pairing those two together, you know, my passion for lifestyle medicine, um, just seeing that there is more than we can do a lot more for osteopenia and osteoporosis. And then also just working with clinicians on a day-to-day basis to really help them you know, implement the best strategies from a nutraceutical perspective, from a diet perspective, an exercise perspective, and really, you know, give the patient as much empowerment as possible, or that clinician to empower the patient as possible to move them forward and take as much into their control that they can. Because, you know, the story with a lot of patients, oh, go ahead. Well, what, how can you help osteoporosis or osteopenia? Like you said, you mentioned just briefly diet exercise. I'm not sure, you know, supplements, but Let's dive into those things. What what can they do, those three things? Yeah, so so starting with diet, you know, there's been some research that's been done on the Mediterranean diet. And so we know that the Mediterranean diet uh, typically has, you know, less processed carbs. It's got, you know, better healthy fats. It's got, you know, leaner proteins and things like that. And all these things really equate to, you know, not only a, a good BMI or uh, weight management for someone who's on that diet, but it lowers the inflammatory levels in that person as well. And so, you know, part of the the connection with, you know, the blog post, the topic of osteoimmunology is that, you know, if inflammation is left unchecked in the body or gets to the state where we have chronic inflammation, it can actually activate some stem cells in our body that upregulate the production of osteoclasts. So a lot of people don't realize that the same stem cell that's connected to the production of this osteoclast 
also produces white blood cells. And with that inflammatory trigger, that pathway towards osteoclast or the, the, the cell that resorbs or eats away a bone is going to be upregulated. So we'll get more osteoclast activity. We'll get more production of osteoclast, more pre-osteoclast that uh, are generated from the stem cell, and we'll get less white blood cell activity. And then also on the flip side, there's this cell called the osteoblast, which of course builds bones um, and, and helps to you know, upregulate the production of laying down new bone. So these two cells, osteoblast, osteoclast, they have to work together, right? But going back to the diet thing, if we're letting inflammation run rampant, we're letting oxidative stress run rampant, you know, on the osteoblast side, we can activate what's called PPAR gamma. And similar to the, the osteoclast, you know, it's generated from a different type of stem cell, uh, mesenchymal as opposed to a uh, hematopoietic stem cell. But if it is, if PPAR gamma is activated, it can actually differentiate into a fat cell instead of an osteoblast cell. So that's how, you know, the importance of diet is when it comes to that. And really, I would say the gold standard diet when it comes to an osteoporotic patient or even an osteopenic patient is the Mediterranean diet, you know, nutrient dense, less processed food, things that are going to lower oxidative stress, lower inflammatory levels. And, um, you know, that's a great strategy from a lifestyle medicine perspective. Let me get into the physiology of the bone for a minute. So if someone has osteoporosis, I guess people assume, oh, their bones are just getting thinner and frailer and weaker, but are they becoming more porous? Is the Are there certain cells that are migrating to parts of the bone they don't normally migrate to? Are things literally leaking out of pores and things like that in the bone? Like, What's been observed on a you know physiological level? Yeah, I mean, when we dig into the physiology, it really comes down to really the regulation of the osteoblast and the osteoclast. And it's this whole system of bone remodeling, right? The balance between resorption and formation. And that's really where a lot of the drug targets come in. That's really where, um, you know, a lot of the the mechanism of that osteoblast to lay down new bone material comes in. But these two cells, this bone remodeling system really starts to take place after about the age of 30. And so to kind of, you know, back up on the bone physiology standpoint a little bit, you know, bone density actually starts in our youth. And so we grow during adolescence and we're, you know, our, our skeleton is rapidly developing. And, um, you know, we really reach peak bone density. We reach our highest point of bone mass uh, right around age 30 or 35 for some. And after that, no matter how much you exercise, the, you know, if you eat the perfect diet, if you take all the right supplements, doesn't matter who you are, uh, we all naturally start to decline. And the difference between men and women, of course, is when uh, women hit menopause, we see a rapid decline because of the loss of estrogen. So from a physiological standpoint, you know, after we reach middle age, we're all on this decline. And, um, you know, if you can do anything in your adolescence or young adulthood to boost your peak bone density, that's really the best thing you can do to preserve bone mass over the long term. But, you know, if you kind of miss that boat, so to speak, getting into things that are going to downregulate inflammation, downregulate oxidative stress, or really, it's really going to help to balance that bone remodeling that starts to take place and sort of recycle bone to keep it strong. And like you said, osteoporosis is really, if we you know, zoom in on what that looks like from a um, specimen standpoint, you know, it looks more porous, it looks more spaced out, you know, the the matrix of that bone looks much weaker from an ar- architectural standpoint than someone who has normal bone density for their stage of life. 
Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. And that all comes between that interaction between the osteoclast and osteoblast. So those two cells need to work closely together. You know, the osteoclast will come through and I kind of use the word picture of like a road crew. So the road crew is going to come through and tear up the old road. And then we want the construction crew to come right behind them and lay down the new road. Um, and that, that would be the job of the osteoblast. So if those two become uncoupled or this, the space between those two jobs that take place become really spread out, they're not communicating to one another. That's when we start to see you know, this more porous, weaker bone structure. And uh, like you said, more of a frail individual that really doesn't take much to fracture that bone. What kind of blood markers would change with osteoporosis or osteopenia? I would think maybe red blood cell count would either, you know, go up or down, or maybe the size of the red blood cells would change or white blood cell count might go down. There's less production. Yeah, there are some markers that you can look into. You know, typically you're not going to be examining you know, white blood cell or red blood cell, unless there's, you know, some type of like underlying anemia or, you know, autoimmune condition or other things that would be indicators to run those types of tests. But there are some really cool markers that you can get even from the urine that give you like breakdown products of some of the other structural components of bone. So some of those are and digestive products of collagen. So a lot of type one collagen will break down. And uh, actually that's you know, one of the tests, aside from a DEXA scan, it's actually put out by Genova Labs. It's their bone assessment test, and it's it's a urine test, and uh, it's a good indicator of bone resorption. So these breakdown products, right, would be indicators that connective tissue is being digested and eliminated. And of course, it's not diagnostic for osteoporosis, and really that comes from uh, solely from DEXA scan. You can probably get some indicators from x-ray and other imaging that would, you know, cause you to want to run a DEXA scan. But, you know, usually from labs, you're not going to be able to diagnose or really you know, see where someone is at with their osteoporosis. They'll give you good indicators in terms of, you know, breakdown products and metabolites that may be portions of bone or metabolites of a, um, or maybe an enzyme that a osteoclast is secreting or things like that. But, you know, you would really run those tests to get an idea of how effective a treatment is. You know, is the drug therapy actually working? Is the supplementation actually working? So we'd like to see those breakdown products decrease on, you know, whatever test you choose to run. What other factors are important? Like, let me back up a little bit. When you're working with a patient, when do you observe and how do you observe that they have bone issues? Is it on the initial x-rays or, you know, through your manipulation, do you somehow see that hmm, something's not right with the bones? You know, I, I will divide, you know, sort of the chiropractic things and sort of the nutrition things and kind of deal with those separately to some degree. So, 
you know, to your point, like physical assessment when it comes to osteoporosis is really, really important. So if you're working on a patient and you see them over the course of 10 years, you can observe how their posture changes. And so with osteoporosis, if someone is losing height and someone is, you know, kind of developing what's called the Dowager's hump or that sort of, you know, forward head posture, that hump on their back, that's an indication that the vertebra are actually slowly collapsing. And, you know, to your point, becoming more frail, a weakened structure. So physical observation and just general observation from a clinical standpoint is definitely an indicator. And, and, you know, for females more so than males, you know, if you start to see those changes taking place around middle age, you know, closer to menopause, that is an absolute red flag. And you want to make sure that you have some sort of baseline test and you could run one of those lab tests. You could run one of the pyridinaline, you know, cross-link urine tests and see what those end products are. And if they have, um, you know, you have some baseline measure and you see that that starts to increase. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, then, yeah, you should run a DEXA scan. You should start to think about what lifestyle measures they should start to implement, you know, from a dietary standpoint, supplement standpoint. But on the nutrition side, you know, you can really dig into things a little bit more with a little bit more detail. You can get into, you know, diet. Um, you can get into what other, you know, comorbidities and chronic diseases is this person battling. And so if they have an autoimmune condition, they're going to be at a much higher risk for developing osteoporosis as opposed, as opposed to someone who doesn't. Um, and that's just because, you know, there's this you know, constant battle going on with their immune system. And uh, that literally is going to take away from some of that balanced approach that's going on between that osteoblast and that osteoclast. Well, what other effects do you see that people have when they're, that go along with osteoporosis, osteopenia? What else happens to them that they may think that's connected? That's weird. Yeah. You know, there are some drugs that will actually cause what's called secondary osteoporosis, uh, and it may also lead to osteopenia. But a lot of people are unaware that steroids can actually contribute to bone resorption. And so sometimes they're surprised to learn that, you know, drugs will, you know, cause nutrient depletion. And uh, we should be repleting minerals and we should be making sure that people have this metabolic reserve built up for, you know, a time of stress and things like that. And, you know, stress alone is, you know, something that can, you know, also increase cortisol, which is a catabolic hormone. So similar to, you know, steroids, endogenous cortisol production um, can also increase bone resorption as well. But I would say that, you know, looking at stress, looking at thyroid, looking at parathyroid, um, looking at what medication somebody's on, looking at their dietary pattern. I just read a recent uh, rat study where they fed these rats a highly processed diet, and they found that the bone structure was much weaker than the rats that were fed, you know, a normal diet with uh, higher amounts of protein. So um, taking all those things into consideration, um, you know, maybe if there was a recent inflammatory marker that was run, you know, but kind of taking the the whole patient picture into context, looking at their age, looking at their lifestyle, you'll have a good idea of whether someone is headed down a certain track and at high risk, or if they are, you know, sort of in a good spot, but could, you know, use some improvement. And what about uh, weightlifting or resistance training? How have you seen that play into helping people with uh, bone issues? Man, it's huge. And, you know, it's a huge benefit, I should say a lot. of So 
when it comes to women in weightlifting, you know, I'm sure you've heard this before, but you know, you'll commonly hear women say, well, I don't want to become a bodybuilder. I don't want to get all this muscle. I don't want to become this, this muscle bound person and kind of lose this feminine, you know, look or whatever. And that's actually very, very difficult to achieve when you think about it. Bodybuilders go through extreme discipline, uh, hours and hours in the gym, but resistance training in general actually strengthens our bones. So it stimulates the osteoblast to be produced and to differentiate, you know, from that mesenchymal stem cell. It also helps to, you know, help our body respond to that stress with an adaptation. And that adaptation is to build stronger bone and make sure that there's thicker bone that can endure that stress. So that's one of the biggest things. And, you know, I've, I actually, I've coached CrossFit for over five years and there was a lady in her early seventies who was coming in and she was recently diagnosed with osteoporosis. And I wasn't working with her on diet or anything like that. She was just going through the normal program. And of course we were aware of her recent diagnosis and we would modify things and we would not push her to max out on sets or reps or anything like that. But what happened after six months, she had another DEXA scan that was coming up shortly after she started. And she noted that her doctor told her that she was no longer osteoporotic. She had kind of moved things back into that osteopenia stage, which was amazing just from simply implementing weightlifting. She didn't change her diet. She really didn't do anything else that she was aware of. She wasn't on a medication yet, but you know, I'm sure if her DEXA scan turned out another way, maybe she would have been prescribed something to help move things in the right direction. So, you know, weight training is right up there with diets, right up there with supplementation from a lifestyle standpoint, especially early on. It is so important to build bone density and help us maintain bone density over the long run. You mentioned osteopenia as if it's a precursor to osteoporosis. Is it? Like, what's the interplay of the two? Yeah, essentially it is a precursor. You know, um, like I said on the DEXA scan, you know, if you have anything below a minus 2.5, so if you're in the minus 2.4 range, um, all the way up to, I believe it's the minus 1.5 or minus one range, then you're considered osteopenic. It's also a finding on an x-ray image as well. So if you see, you know, an area on a vertebra, if you, if you take an x-ray that is more radiolucent or less dense, um, you can, you know, list that as a finding on your radiographic report and say, you know, L4, L5, there, there is a uh, appearance of osteopenic presentation. And, you know, this would justify my ordering of a DEXA scan type of thing for further evaluation. But, you know, you can't diagnose osteoporosis typically from an x-ray unless there's evidence of vertebral collapse or, you know, you pair that with the history of the patient or, you know, risk factors and things like that. So typically, like I said, DEXA scan is, you know, the, the gold standard for a diagnosis of osteopenia and also osteoporosis. So how does this uh, work with your chiropractic? You know, people come in, if you sense there's a problem somehow, again, through x-ray or through physical manipulation, you may send them for a DEXA scan and then are you counseling them on these other issues? Or are you saying like, hey, I, I recommend you see a functional doctor and they help you? Like, how do you provide this full service care? Yeah, so typically I will, you know, I will discuss many nutritional topics, right? So I'll have, you know, sort of rotating topics throughout the year. Bone density is one that I'm just interested in. And so that's, uh, you know, sort of something that I'll put out there in social media and I'll talk about and write about in blogs and things like that. But you know, I practice on Saturday mornings once a week, and then I, I work for the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center Monday through Friday. So 
And I also have two kids and, you know, home life and all that. So I, I, I don't have a huge thriving practice, but I have seen a handful of patients and put them through this osteoporosis protocol. And then through the LMRC or the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center have helped other doctors implement this in their practice as well. But typically it would go a lot like any other patient intake. So looking for those risk factors, looking for, you know, what their goals are. Also listening to, you know, a typical chiropractic visit or new patient evaluation, you know, what are they interested in? What do they currently have going on? Um, sometimes they'll just ask you, they'll say, Hey, you know, I, my doctor recently talked to me about, you know, bone density. Uh, is there anything you can do to help me with that? And that's how I've gotten a handful of people started, not necessarily from my genius marketing or anything like that. But yeah, from there, it would just be, you know, deciding to what type of test do we need to order with this patient? Uh, what does their insurance cover? You know, I will refer out for a DEXA scan in some cases because a patient's insurance would cover it with, you know, a medical doctor versus a chiropractor. So, you know, I don't always want to just give them a huge bill or out-of-pocket expense. Um, if something's covered with insurance, I'll work with another provider to get as many things covered as possible and, um, you know, would send them for the DEXA scan, uh, both the initial and then follow-up. And, you know, make sure, make sure there's some coordination and communication. And, you know, I would help guide the nutrition portion. And then I may recommend them to a gym, you know, with some trainers that I trust or a physical therapist that I trust to implement some of that uh, strength training to get them started on that. So not every patient follows every step of the program that I, I would recommend or have them implement. But even if they go 80% of the way, even if they're 80% consistent with those recommendations, I find that most people will find some benefit and improve their bone density because they really haven't been doing any lifestyle change prior to that. Do you have any older patients, you know, 70s, 80s that um, have like, you know, I mean, they're still doing good with their bones. Uh, they're way away from the, you know, the normal chart of uh, the bone density people would have at their age. Yeah. You know, there are some elderly patients that do come in and, you know, there one patient that comes to mind was a lady that was actually in her mid nineties who was still asking for hands-on adjusting. And typically you're a lot more cautious with those patients because they're, you know, more prone to, you know, a rib fracture or something like that. If, you know, you use too much force, you got to be cautious, but yeah, you know, there are patients that still get adjusted, still have somewhat normal bone density. I have not run a, a DEXA scan on this individual, but like mentally she's sharp. Uh, she still is out and active and moving around as much as possible. I'm sure if her daughter let her drive a car, she would probably attempt to do that. Um, but that you know, privilege has kind of been taken away just for the safety of everyone and herself. But you know, there, there are older elderly individuals who they probably have some lower bone density, but they're still, they've probably done enough things right early on in their life where they've maximized their peak bone density. And they really have less risk and less worry regarding those things uh, later on in life. The DEXA scan itself, is it tuned to the person's age or does it just look at a, uh, a density and it says good or bad, no matter what their age is? So there's, you know, there's really two different types of scores. There's the T score, which is more general, more broad. And then there's the Z score, which can get more specific to, you know, that, that patient age grouping and also account for sex differences as well. So, you know, in some cases the Z score is helpful, but, you know, if, if there's some particular things that, you know, are maybe different about this person or maybe the radiologist or whoever ordered the test, you know, feels that the T-score isn't sufficient. Uh, but for the most part, 
you know, from what I've seen and the, the scores that I've received back is it's mostly been T scores. And that's been the primary way of, uh, you know, evaluating bone density. Oh, so one of the metrics does take into account a person's age. Yes. Yep. Yep. And really, you know, what the T score and Z score, Z score are is they are standard deviations away from a 30 year old or the average 30 year old white female bone density. So, you know, and then they'll, they'll score it negative one, negative two, negative three. And so those are standard deviations away from what we would typically see. And so obviously not every patient is a, meets that standard of an average 30 year old white female. So it's a um, sort of a relative density score and it is fairly accurate, but, you know, sometimes it's helpful to run some other tests to get an idea of, you know, what I would say bone, what a DEXA scan is really good at is bone quantity, but it doesn't really give you the whole picture of bone quality. And that's where we get into, you know, some of these other tests of bone resorption markers and things like that. They can let you know structurally, you know, what's going on and how much breakdown is occurring in that bone mate. So what's observed typically as someone ages, how much does their density decrease? How much does their bone mass decrease on average? I don't know that I have a specific number for you, but I will say that, you know, going from sort of a normal bone density or that peak bone mass all the way at 30 years old, most women, just because they're going to go through menopause and they're going to see that rapid initial decrease through that stage of life, most women will actually end up, if they stay alive into their, you know, 80s and 90s, they're going to end up automatically in that osteopenic category based on, you know, what we see on, on typical ranges. Most men, if they reach that age, you know, they will generally, you know, be right on the border, but they won't fall into that osteopenic category unless they have some other things going on and, you know, have lived a very poor lifestyle or, you know, not reached the sufficient peak bone mass to begin with. So unfortunately, women, you know, kind of get the raw deal on this one, but it's also just, you know, we need more people out there letting them know that there's more they can do about it to kind of, you know, decrease that trajectory and make sure they turn things back, you know, towards a more dense bone structure and avoiding some of those risks of uh, fractures later on in life. Very good. Any, I mean, any suggestions or advice for, uh, you know, people that are getting chiropractic right now, but their chiropractor doesn't talk to them about their bones at all. They just crack them and whack them and off they go. Is there any point in opening up a conversation with them or will they just not know? Like what, what can people do if they fear that they're having issues with their bones well, they've been told they're having these issues. Wait, wait, what are some resources for them? Yeah, you know, I, w- I would say a good place to start is, you know, asking their chiropractor, number one, if there's anything from a lifestyle standpoint that they can get started on. So if the chiropractor has a good relationship with a physical therapist or would offer some type of resistance training in their office, if they have a good rehab set up, they know a good trainer down the road, you know, having their chiropractor get connected with the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center. We actually, you know, it's funny we're talking about this, but we have a bone builder program that we developed that helps, you know, train chiropractors, get them up to speed very quickly, uh, gives them the base foundation of all the the scientific knowledge that they need, uh, what tests they should consider and when, you know, who they might want to consider referring to and how to build some of those relationships. And then also how to implement this from a clinical standpoint and then kind of market it and promote it. And, you know, we're talking just easy, simple things like posting a blog or a social media post or, 
you know, some of the things that we talked about today. But so, yeah, I would say, you know, start there, look into resources out there like the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center, look into programs like the Bone Builder Program. You know, typically what a lot of patients will do is they'll run off and anytime they hear anything about bone or bone density, they'll run off and they'll buy a bunch of calcium. The problem with that is what we're now finding is that if you just load up on calcium, you're also increasing your risk of cardiovascular disease or bad cardiovascular outcome if you're just taking calcium alone. So what the new recommendation is, is a lot lower dose, uh, the right type of calcium, but then also combining that with, you know, enough vitamin D, enough vitamin K and enough magnesium so that you metabolize and assimilate that calcium properly. And it's not deposited into arteries and causing inflammation and not really getting to the bone where it needs to go. So I think we're seeing that shift in the nutritional recommendations. And I'm not sure how many chiropractors are actually aware of that. And I'm definitely not sure how many patients are aware of that. So I know that there's still rows and rows and rows of calcium tablets, high dose calcium tablets on the shelf at Walgreens and Walmart and wherever else people go to buy their supplements. But, you know, really working with someone who's been trained in nutrition, who's up to date, who knows what other nutrients to combine with calcium is a, that's an awesome place to start. And you'd be way ahead of the curve on that. Well, very good. Frank, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You've had some really great things to share and help, help for people. So where can they find you specifically in the Lifestyle Matrix Center. Where do they go? Yeah, so the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center does have a Facebook page. They also have uh, Instagram as well. So feel free to follow along. Now, you know, I will say most of the posts on there are for the purpose of, you know, clinicians will promote webinars and resources and things like that. You know, to interact with me personally, I have uh, Instagram. I call it uh, The Nutrient Fix, so at The Nutrient Fix. And I, I'll post things on uh, Instagram and Facebook as well. But I'll write blogs on my website and, um, you know, try to stay up to date on and the latest things with uh, nutrition and functional medicine and things like that as well. Well, very good, Frank. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.